So we are together now in 2 Peter chapter 3. I've entitled this today, The Scriptures and the Fight for Joy. Now, I'm going to have to prove to you that this is a good title because I'm going to have to prove to you that this is the subject of what these verses are talking about. So before we do that, I'd like you to turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1 to give you a little bit of context for this letter, and um, then I'm going to give you some reasons why we're doing this today, why we're approaching these Scriptures today. So let me give you a little bit of context for 2 Peter. We'll read some verses, then I want to apply it to our situation from the very beginning today that will lay some context, uh, hopefully, to help us understand why I've chosen these specific verses and what the Spirit, hopefully, will teach us today. Peter wrote this small letter, it's only three chapters, to encourage the saints to stand fast, to grow in grace, to treasure Christ, especially in light of some opposition that was coming their way. Specifically, we find most of that mentioned in chapter 2 and, again, some in chapter 3. There were opponents of the gospel that had risen up in these churches. They knew enough about the Scriptures to be dangerous, but they had twisted the Scriptures. Specifically, they were denying that Christ was going to come and renew the earth. This means that He wasn't going to bring judgment. He wasn't going to return and rescue the righteous. And if that's true, if He's not going to punish the wicked, and if He's not going to rescue the righteous, then in their minds that means they could do whatever they wanted. And that led them to some very horrible and sinful ways of living. They decided that if Christ were not going to come and judge the wicked and rescue the righteous, that essentially they could do whatever they wanted. This led them to sensuality, to not loving the brethren, to living separated lives for their own glory and not for the glory of Christ. And they weren't just doing this blindly, they were doing it with open eyes, rejecting the teaching of the apostles like Peter and Paul. In fact, they were even using some of the writings of Peter and especially Paul to twist the Scriptures in such a fashion to support their positions. If you think about it, it's not so much different from what we see all around us today. Somebody was asking me recently uh, about somebody good to watch on TV if they wanted to, like, listen to a sermon or watch, like, a worship service. And they started ticking off names, and they said, what about this person? What about this person? I said, heretic, heretic, heretic. And they said, well, is there anybody on TV that's not a heretic? And I said, yeah, there's like two or three. But for the most part, the people that are really super popular and raking in all the money aren't teaching the Word the way they should. Recently, when we were in Kenya, we found that this is one of the great exports of of the United States. We don't only export corn and you know, fuel and textiles and things like that. We also export really terrible theology. And right now, faithful pastors in Kenya are dealing with the debilitating effects of our bad theology. This wasn't just true in Peter's day 2,000 years ago. It's definitely true in our day as well. So what Peter does in this letter is he points out error. He's not afraid to do that. And probably as he wrote this letter to these people, they knew exactly who he was talking about. So there was no lack of clarity. There was no ambiguity about this. He, he pointed them out. He clarified who they were. But he calls these Christians to endure in confidence. And it's interesting, if you take time to discerningly read these three chapters, 
I think one of the primary themes that comes from Peter's pen is that if we're going to be able to do that, and that is to say, if we're going to be able to discern what is erroneous and dangerous, and if we're going to be able to discern the path of righteousness, the path of light, then we better know the Word of God. I want to read together 2 Peter chapter 1. It's kind of lengthy. It's going to demand that you pay attention. I know it's hard when lengthier passages are read, but I think it'll give us a little bit of context as we step into our last few verses of the end of the letter. So, put on your listening ears, be discerning, ask the Spirit to keep your heart focused, and I want you to read with this filter in mind. In what ways does Peter point to the Scriptures themselves to call these people to discernment and maturity? In what ways is Peter alluding to the Scriptures in this first chapter to call the people to steadfast maturity? Let's read together. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's calling them to endurance. And notice, he's already talked about knowledge of God. Well, where does that come from? By implication, of course, it comes from the Scriptures. He's talked about God's promises. Where do we find those? We find those in the Scriptures. So how do we endure? We endure through knowing God and resting in His promises as found in the Scriptures. Notice what else Peter says. Verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So he's saying to them, I'm going to give you the word so you can know it day after day so you can endure. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. We have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, 
that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, Peter wants to do two primary things in this letter. He wants to warn the Christians about false teachers. And false teaching always leads to bad living. If you have a wrong view of God, of the gospel, you will inevitably, without exception, be led to wrong decisions in living. Not only does he want to warn them about this, he wants to encourage them toward obedience and endurance. How will they do that? If they're going to endure, if they're going to persevere for God's glory, if they're going to find their satisfaction in Christ, the Scriptures are absolutely indispensable. He calls them to grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He calls them to rest in the promises of God. He says that He's going to stir them up by way of reminder even after He's gone. How will He do that? He will do that through His writings. And he says to them that the word that they had, which would have been the Old Testament, and laid alongside that the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, was this repository, this treasure trove to which they had to look if they were ever going to make it to the end. So how do you discern and avoid false teaching and, by extension, bad ways of living? And conversely, how do you endure and joy to the end for the glory of God? You must know the Scriptures, and you must turn to them again and again. Which is why I have entitled this teaching time for today, The Scriptures and the Fight for Joy. I think Peter is contending for their joy in this small letter by calling them to discern their way by knowing the Word of God. So, if chapter 1 is this call to endurance and growth through the Word, and if chapter 2 is a reminder or an exposing of these false teachers, chapter 3 is a reminder that indeed the end is coming. The false teachers were saying, no, it's not. Jesus is not going to come. He's not going to judge the wicked. He's not going to rescue the righteous. So, we can do whatever we want. Peter says in chapter 3, in fact, that's not going to happen. God is going to judge the wicked, and He's going to restore everything for the righteous. In verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that is to say, the world that they can see, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, again found in His Word, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This reminds us of what we studied some many months ago in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says that creation groans and we ourselves groan inwardly awaiting our final adoption. It has been initiated but not yet consummated. And when Christ returns, our adoption will be finalized and groaning will cease. There is coming a day when God will judge the world, and He will refashion the very fabric of this planet and make it a place where the righteous will dwell in perfect peace and safety. But until that day, we are called to endure in righteousness, holiness, and godliness. 
And as I've already been saying to you today, the Scriptures are absolutely indispensable in that process. So our verses for today. Therefore, beloved, he had this deep affection for them, and I say to you, therefore, beloved, fellow sojourners, since you, since we are waiting for these, that is to say, the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Again, the Scriptures are mentioned. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I'm going to propose to you four ways in which the Scriptures help us as we pursue these lives of steadfast godliness. First of all, The Scriptures are indispensable in leading a holy life. In chapter 3, verse 14, notice that Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter already said to us back in chapter 1 that we are to grow in godliness. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, Peter says that, He has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Then he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement, and he gives stage upon stage upon stage of maturity. Well, by what means does that stage of maturity grow upon itself or stages of maturity grow upon themselves? It comes through the Scriptures. They're absolutely indispensable. So, the Scriptures are indispensable, irreplaceable. Nothing can quite match them in leading a holy life. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 19. You can keep your finger there in 2 Peter 3. Let's turn together to Psalm 19. This passage was read to us a while ago uh, today as we prepared our hearts for worship to receive God's Word. I want to return there for a moment as we think about how the Scriptures help us in pursuing lives of holiness. So, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. David says, "...the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart." The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Peter's first letter, 
We call it First Peter. He reminds us that God Himself is holy, and He calls us to be holy. If that's true, how do we do that? The Scriptures help us to do that by both revealing that which is unholy and pointing us toward holiness. Now, as we've said many times here, the concept of holiness is not just sort of an antithesis to sin. The concept of holiness is not really a synonym for righteousness. Righteousness would sort of be subsumed under the concept of holiness. No, holiness really carries the idea of uniqueness. Being set apart to a holy God means that in all the ways that God is unique, we are to be unique like Him. If He is faithful, we should be faithful. If He is loving, we should be loving. If He hates sin, we should hate sin. The Scriptures reveal God's character to us, His faithfulness, His love, His righteousness, His purity, His beauty. And as we see His character therein reflected, we ourselves are called to these kinds of lives as well. So, Psalm 19 verses 7 through 14 show us that there are sinful things yet in us. Though we have a new nature given to us by the Spirit, sin yet remains. Though we are free from its dominion, we are not free from its presence. The Scriptures point out to us kind of like a Geiger counter where sin remains. Perhaps you've ever watched a special on Chernobyl or some other places where nuclear testing was done back in the day. You'll see these people in like these silver suits with big helmets and breathing apparatus in the back, and they're walking around like they're, you know, finding aliens and so forth, and they have this little counter, and it goes like this, and when it starts going like that more rapidly and more loudly, it means that there's the presence of radiation because their little Geiger counter is telling them that. In some ways, that's what the Scriptures do. They're like a Geiger counter. They're like a, they're like a sin presence promoter. I don't know. You call it whatever you want. They, they reveal, they expose where sin yet remains in our heart. Now, I've heard some people say in the past that, that they just love it when their sin's exposed. You know, they love to listen to sermons or read books or, or read their Bible, and, and they, they, they find this like great joy in getting beaten up. I used to to uh, hear this sometimes when I was in school, and we'd go to chapel. And there's always like a couple guys in chapel who were you know pretty good preachers, and and you'd hear like like the superstar Bible students, like they would say, yeah, like Doctor So and So is preaching today. I can't wait to get my butt kicked by him. And I used to think to myself, you know, I kind of guess I know what you mean. Like you know, it's, Jesus is better than than the way you're presently living or the things you're currently treasuring. So whenever you get your sin exposed and and get you know, Jesus put in front of you as a greater treasure, that there's pleasure that comes from that ultimately. But, but none of us really like to have our sin exposed because it doesn't feel very good. It, it hurts our pride. But to their credit, these sort of like cowboy Christians I used to hear and get irritated by, there's a point they're trying to make that in the times where our sin gets exposed, and frankly, anytime we come to the Word, there, there should be some kind of realization of where we fall short. That, that little sin meter should be going off. The, the presence of sin is showing up. And though that's ugly and though it hurts our pride and though we want to run away from it a lot of times, it's so necessary because if we're really going to find joy in Christ, we have to have our sin exposed. 
But we also have to have holiness set in front of us as something better than our sin. That is to say, if we're ever going to truly follow after Christ, we have to see Him as a superior treasure. As I already said to you, holiness is not just a synonym for righteousness. The idea of holiness is uniqueness. It's better than anything the world has to offer. And so as we come to the Word, not only is our sin exposed, we find God Himself to be to be better. We find not only the gifts that He has to offer, but Himself, the very person of God, to be better than that which we often choose. But don't you find yourself very often as a week comes along, stepping right out into that week and losing sight of both things? That is to say, losing sight of the fact that sin yet remains and that God is a better treasure? How will we ever pursue lives of holiness? How will we ever see the wickedness and lack of satisfaction that sin brings if we don't come to the Word? How will we ever choose God as a better treasure if we don't come to the Word? It is true, as we saw in Psalm 19 earlier, that trees and clouds and photosynthesis and oceans and animals and all kinds of other majestic things declare to us the glory of God. But it doesn't quite match what the Scriptures do. Because we can learn about God, we can learn quite a lot about Him, frankly, by looking at creation, but we learn so much more about His character because it's definitively spelled out for us, particularly His grace when we look into His Word. Why is it that we step out into a week's walk, another sojourning week, and not deal with our sin, and not behold the superior treasure that God is? Why do we do that? Because we love to live autonomously. We love to think that through our own efforts and wisdom and strength, we can make life work. You see, ultimately, coming to the Scriptures is an act of humility, but it's also a fight of faith. And I say to you today that if God has called us to holy living, the only way ultimately that path can be enjoyed and the only way that it can actually be endured, because it's a hard path that we sojourn, is through the Word of God. So the Scriptures are indispensable and leading us to holiness, both exposing our sin and calling us to a life of fighting for joy in Christ. We've already seen in 1 Peter chapter 1, or rather in 2 Peter chapter 1, that Peter calls us to holy living. I think we also see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, so you can turn there with me. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Notice, notice he says minds here, not just muscles. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written in the Scriptures, you shall be holy for I am holy. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, Scriptures, 
For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. So in Peter's mind, if they are to lead holy lives, his hearers, his readers, the Scriptures are indispensable. So, I think hopefully that's pretty clear. But secondly, we find in 2 Peter chapter 3 that the Scriptures are indispensable in resting in God's mercy. The Scriptures are indispensable in resting in God's mercy. Look at verse 15. Peter says, "...and count the patience of our Lord as salvation." Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Seemingly, the opponents, these false teachers that Peter talked about in the second chapter of this short letter, were taking some of Paul's writings and twisting them to support their own positions. Now, Peter says this is wrong. In fact, he said earlier on that no Scripture is given to private interpretation. So, in other words, it's possible to misinterpret the Scriptures. You have heard it said many, many times whenever you've talked to people about the Bible, maybe especially to non-Christians when you're sharing the gospel with them, they might say something like, well, that's your interpretation. According to Peter, however, there is really bad interpretation which I think leads us to the implication that there is good interpretation. So what these opponents were doing is they were denying that God was mercifully delaying His coming, mercifully delaying sending Christ to condemn the wicked and rescue the righteous to give people more time to repent. They were misusing some of Paul's writings to to support their positions. Perhaps where Paul talks about the idea of free grace, that justification comes by grace through faith and not through our own efforts. In fact, sometimes Paul had to defend his own position on justification by grace through faith alone because he thought that people might come to the conclusion that you could do whatever you wanted. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, he says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Apparently, some of his opponents were saying such things, that if grace is really free, if, if our pardon does not come through our own efforts but through the grace of Jesus Christ, then we can do whatever we want. Well, Paul combats such terrible thinking by says, by no means, God forbid. Perhaps that's what Peter is referring to here in verses 15 and 16 in 2 Peter chapter 3. People were taking Paul's writings and twisting them to support their, their positions. In other words, if, if Christ hasn't come yet, because they were expecting Him to return and judge the wicked and rescue the righteous. Well, maybe He's never going to come. In fact, according to Paul, we can do whatever we want because grace is free. We, we, are, we are given freedom to make our own decisions. Paul said, God forbid. And Peter said they were twisting the Scriptures to support their position. Do you ever hear something from someone, somebody purportedly religious, that sounds really, really plausible. I think this happens all the time under the guise of Christianity. 
Perhaps you've had a Mormon come to your front door, a Jehovah's Witness, and you invite them in, you sit down and you talk to them, and they begin to talk about Jesus and grace and faith and heaven and the afterlife. And you think to yourself, well, you know, I've, I've heard that, that these people are part of cults, but it sounds pretty good. They use the same language. Or you hear people from other kinds of religions, and you've heard maybe they don't quite get justification by grace alone through faith alone right, but then you start talking to them over lunch in the cafeteria at work or whatever the case may be, and you think to yourself, well, you know, they're using the same language as me. Peter admits here that being a Christian who understands even the hard parts of Scripture takes discernment. It takes hard work, but it's absolutely necessary. How can you discern false teaching? Maybe not false teaching that's like 180 degrees off, but false teaching that's maybe 10 degrees off. How do you do that? You've got to know the Word. That was going on in Peter's day. He calls these people to understand God's mercy because it was God's mercy which was leading them to repentance and giving them time for repentance. The false teachers were taking this and twisting it to their own ends. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Romans chapter 2. This is a place in Paul's writings where he speaks of God's mercy, as Peter says he does. And it's important for us sometimes to understand why God has delayed sending His Son to punish the wicked and rescue the righteous and the purpose behind it. In Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. If you think about it, it sounds a whole lot like we're seeing here in Second Peter chapter 3. He has called his readers, those who would hear this letter, to be diligent, to be found by Him without spot or blemish, and at peace. And He says to them, God's patience in delaying sending Christ to punish the wicked and to rescue the righteous is for a purpose. It's to give people more time to repent. It's not to give people more time to lead their own lives. Let me see if I can help you understand, because this is a little tricky the connection between Christ's coming and the call to holiness. If Christ is coming soon, or we could say it this way, if Christ could come at any moment, or maybe we could make it even a little bit more acute. If you knew that Christ was coming in the next week, 
How would you live? You know what it's like. I mean, you come on a Sunday and you've been to church services on Sundays for many, many years, most of you. And there's been some profound ones from time to time. Maybe there was a good sermon or a great testimony or whatever the case may be. But, but in the grand scheme of things, we forget most of the individual Sundays in our lives. It's really easy to come in with all the stresses and burdens of life and, and have another throwaway Sunday. But what if you knew Jesus was coming on Friday? Even if the sermon was a little bit boring, you'd probably pay pretty close attention. You'd probably take pretty good notes. And you'd probably come up with a few bullet points at the end of your notes and say, I'm going to do these things this week. I'm going to purpose to lead a holy life. My proclivities towards certain sins, my, my tendencies towards certain sins, I'm really going to pay attention to those this week. If I'm quickly angry with my wife or my kids, I'm going to be really careful not to do that and take a deep breath before I respond. If I tend to struggle with lust late at night after my wife has gone to bed and, and I have my computer out, I'm, I'm going to go to bed with her on time. You know, if, I, if I tend to be a little bit deceitful at work to cover up some of my deficiencies and laziness, I'm going to work really, really hard and tell the truth. I mean, you would probably avoid some of the things you tend to do, and you would tend to do the opposite. You'd probably read the Bible a lot. You'd probably spend some extra time in prayer. You'd probably give away some of your money to those who had needs. You'd probably gather your loved ones together and, and show them affection. People in Peter's day expected Jesus to come at any time. But these false teachers, to satisfy their own appetites, to draw attention to themselves, we're telling these people, listen, He hasn't come yet. Maybe He just won't. And if He won't, then what does it matter what we do? I mean, He's not going to judge us anyway. And we don't have any hope of rescue, so why don't we just do what we want? And they were using Paul's writings and twisting them and saying, you know, Paul says grace is free, so why don't we just do what we want? But Peter knew of this error, and he wants to tell these people, listen, Avoid these false teachers and don't follow them because you will end up being destroyed right along with the rest of the world. And as we look at Romans chapter 2, we're reminded that people who pursue eternal life and holiness can expect to enjoy God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. But those who follow their own proclivities, their own inclinations, their own desire for sinfulness, and cloak it under the guise of some sort of religious affection, they're going to find their own end, and it's going to be destruction. The Scriptures are absolutely indispensable in leading a holy life and resting in God's mercy, which has been given to us to lead us to repentance. So, why has Christ delayed His coming? so that more people can rest in His grace and find Him to be their true treasure. So while we await His coming, we should lead holy lives and rest in His mercy, because His mercy was given to us for, for repentance and for finding real treasure in Him, not to give us time to do whatever we wanted. The Scriptures do that for us as well. Thirdly, the Scriptures are indispensable in discerning the trajectory of our path. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, Peter says, You therefore, beloved, again he, he speaks to them with affection, Be, beloved, he cares so much for them, he wants to tell them these things. Knowing this beforehand, take care 
that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. He tells them, you're in peril. It's like walking on a path in the woods at night, and there are wolves all around you. You better pay attention because they will bite your calf, tear your Achilles, drag you into the woods, and kill you. How do we discern the trajectory of this upward, difficult, windy path? The Scriptures are indispensable in this. Let's turn together, please, to Psalm 119. We've already seen in Psalm 19, so Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 are perhaps the clearest um, expressions in the Psalms of the importance of the Scriptures. We know that David wrote Psalm 19. We're not sure who wrote Psalm 119, but it's easy to remember because you've got 19 and 119. These, these Psalms call us to pay attention to God's Word and, and show us how important they are. And in Psalm 119, verses 1 through 16, we're shown that the Scriptures are like a light to our path to help us discern our way. It won't take time to read verses 1 through 8. Let's start in verse 9. How can a young man, or of course a young woman, keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, the word kind of acts like a spiritual Geiger counter for us. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth and the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I wonder perhaps if David did write Psalm 119. Sounds like David. What if David wrote this psalm in his youth when his heart burned for God? What if he wrote it after his encounters with Saul as he saw the mighty king fall from grace and pursue himself? What if David perhaps, and again we're just conjecturing here a bit, but what what if David perhaps wrote this after his sins with Bathsheba and the indirect murderer of her husband Uriah, or other times where he did not obey God's Word. It would make a whole lot more sense if it was written after a life, a life which had tasted the bitterness of sin, the lack of satisfaction that sinful choices ultimately brings, a life which had enough evidence in it, enough, enough path behind it to demonstrate that sin ultimately leads to to destruction, but God alone can satisfy the soul. These words sound like the words of a mature person who had tasted everything and found everything to be wanting or lacking other than God Himself. So what the psalmist is saying here is, help me to know my path. I've tried the sinful path. It it doesn't satisfy. So help me to see sin for what it is and help me to see you for who you are and lead me to know you. 
So Psalm 119 verses 1 through 16 is just one place that shows us what the trajectory of our path is really like. And though it's not fun to have your sin revealed, if the ultimate outcome is that you get joy because sin gets exposed and therefore diminished, and Christ Himself seems all the more beautiful and pursue Him, it's worth it. So the Scriptures are indispensable in leading a holy life and resting in God's mercy because they show us what holiness is like. It reminds us of God's mercy and the purpose of it. The Scriptures are likewise indispensable in discerning the trajectory of our path to see where we are. And fourthly and lastly today, the Scriptures are indispensable in treasuring Christ or helping us to treasure Christ. Look in verse 18 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So he warns them in verse 17, Watch out for the false teachers. You might lose your footing. If you've ever taken time to do any outdoor pursuits, which sometimes hard to do around here, especially in the winter, but if you've ever done that, it's, it's challenging. I remember one of the first times, I think it was the first time uh, I ever took Whitney backpacking. We were out in Wyoming, not too far from Jackson, and we were doing this big loop. And so you go up through this one really steep, um, elevated canyon. You go over a mountain pass, and you come down through another canyon, and you come out at the same trailhead. It's absolutely gorgeous. We did it right at sort of the beginning of fall, so the aspen were golden, and the air was crisp but not too cold. First night, we hiked up to about 9,000 feet, and I was in terrible shape at that point. She was in really great shape, and I was not loving life that night. I got altitude sickness and felt really bad, but slept it off and got up in the morning and felt really, really great. And it was a good thing because not too long after that, before we reached the, the pass, and a pass is kind of a low saddle between two peaks, we had to go over this pass to get into the next canyon to come out to our trailhead. Well, before we could get up to that pass, we had to go across this snow field. And um, in a lot of places out west, there's snow year-round. In fact, there's a lot of places where you can only really hike without ropes or spikes on your feet called crampons for about a month a year because there's still so much snow. Well, this one section of snowbank, there were, there were little footholds that had been cut out. And you kind of had to, to lean back against the slope of the mountain and put your foot in each snow hole because we didn't have any crampons in our feet. And if you took a wrong step, you were going to slide you know, way down the mountain. You probably wouldn't have died, but they probably would have had to brought a chopper in and carry you up. My wife does not like slippery things. She doesn't like them at all. And she was much faster than me on that mountain that day because she was in much better shape than me. But she was not faster than me on that snowbank. So I went first and showed her the way to do it, and then, and then she went, and she hates these things. And she got across, but she's never, she's never forgotten to tell me about her exploits that day because she was on a slippery path, and she's very proud of herself for having you know, circumnavigated this very dangerous snowbank. And she likes to tell other people about it as she talks about her backcountry exploits as well. It was a slippery path, and it was dangerous. It was possible to lose footing and and to die. He warns them in verse 17 that they're in danger, if they're not careful, of losing their footing and dying. This is why we know people who have professed Christ and have lost their way. It explains to us the parable of the soils, does it not? 
that the gospel is scattered, sometimes in the ground, the evil one snatches it away, but sometimes it falls among the rocks, and it springs up quickly, but it dies quickly as well. Sometimes it gets among the thorns, and the thorns choke it out. It's only the seed that falls into the ground and actually bears fruit over time that you can look at and say, that's, that's, that's the real genuine deal. That person really knows Christ. We would all do well to, to ask ourselves, how is our footing? Are, are we slipping? Do we have the possibility of slipping? And how do we keep from slipping? Well, the antidote to not losing our footing is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I think what Peter is saying here is you've got to know Jesus and treasure Him. When you do that, He gets glory because He is seen as the only one who can really satisfy you. So as you treasure Jesus, not only does that bring joy to you, it preaches to the world. It proclaims to the world that there, in fact, is one who will bring you satisfaction, but it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Turn with me, please, to John 15. You're probably relatively familiar with this passage. Jesus has had the Last Supper with the disciples, and He has some very important things He wants to say to them. And primarily here in John 15, He calls them to abide in Him. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Notice here in this section, he says that, We are to abide in Him. There's this integral, organic connection between Christ and His disciples. If the fruit is not being born, it calls into question whether or not the branch is is truly genuine. And punishment comes to those who are not genuine branches. Notice also that it's not just abiding in Christ. It's His words abiding in us. So there's a definite connection between Christ Himself, capital W Word. He's called that in John chapter 1. And lowercase w word, His words abiding in us. So we abide in the capital W word, the word of God, when the words of God or the words of Christ abide in us. And what's the result of all this? God gets glory, we've already seen that, and we get joy. I think that's what Peter is saying in his own way in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 18, because he heard Jesus say those words. And reflecting on those words of Jesus many decades later, he knows that people can lose their stability. Peter did, did he not? Jesus warned him, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, and you're going to deny me. Peter says, by by no means, I'll never do that. And then he did. But Jesus confirmed him, and Peter did not forget. 
He knew that the way that he would maintain his grip, his feet would stay steadfast on the path, is through the Word of God. And the words of Christ dwelt richly in Peter, and he calls them to do the same because he says, but grow in the grace that's resting in Jesus' promises and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, what's that mean? Well, we know Jesus through the Word. You cannot know Jesus apart from His words. Jesus said that back in John 15. My words must abide in you, and then you'll bear fruit, and then God will get glory, and then you'll, you'll have joy. So the Scriptures are absolutely indispensable in leading a holy life, in resting in God's mercy, in discerning the trajectory of our path, and in treasuring Christ. All these things that we've been called to in these few verses at the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, the only way those are going to come to pass is through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, revealed in people like Peter and Paul. So I call you to that this year. That's why we're covering this. We always, at some point in January, talk about the Word, the essential nature of the Word and the essential nature of prayer, which we're going to talk about next week. So I'm not calling you to some sort of legalistic observance, but I am saying to you, if you want to lead a holy life to please God, if you want to understand and rest in His mercy, if you want to know how you're walking, and if you want to treasure Christ, if you really want to be satisfied, you, you, you cannot get away from the importance of the Scriptures. I'm not calling you to legalism. I'm calling you to fight for joy, and I'm telling you that the Scriptures are indispensable in that fight. How will we do that? And we'll close. Well, I want us as a church, I want you individually to have a word-saturated life. Here's some ways you can do that. This is not rocket science. First, be at corporate gatherings. Be here as much as you can. Hear God's Word. Through it, you find out what holiness really is. Through it, you're reminded of God's mercy. Through it, you get to see where you're falling short and how you should move forward. Through it, you find real joy. Come to corporate gatherings. and That could be Sunday. It could be your small group. It could be studies. And I know you can't come to all that stuff, all of you, all the time, but be it as much as you can. You want to know why your joy gets sapped? There's probably lots of reasons, but one of the primary reasons is because you don't know God's Word. You're not exposed to it. And if you're not exposed to it, your sin's not getting exposed. And if your sin's not getting exposed, you're not finding superior joy in Christ. So be at the corporate gatherings. And there's something really important about doing this together. Because when the community comes together, we're all in the same fight together. So come to corporate gatherings. Secondly, have family worship. Now, I'm not saying to you that you should necessarily do the same thing that your neighbor does. You know, you know what it's like whenever you hear your friend who you think is like the greatest parent in the world and they, you know, like their kids learned all of Romans last year and you know, they probably can say it in Latin and Greek as well. And you know, they've, they've read Bunyan and, and Luther by the time they're like out of diapers. Like you look at them, you're like, I can never do that. And it's kind of really discouraging. Just start somewhere. It could be three times a week or it, it might be five minutes at night when you have little kids because that's basically all they can maintain anyway. But, but find some way to set the trajectory in your home, to create an atmosphere in your home where God's Word is central. Dads especially, you have to set the pace here. Thirdly, discipleship. A lot of you are involved in discipleship relationships. 
But one of the basic things we do in all of our discipleship relationships is we just pay attention to God's Word. It's really important to to have a time set aside in the week where maybe you meet with somebody else and you just talk about God's Word together. Maybe it's not a traditional discipleship relationship. Maybe it's, maybe it's two peers who are already pretty mature in Christ just getting together and reminding each other of the Word. But I, I find discipleship is, is a pretty important relationship for all of us to be in, either if you're doing the discipling or if you're being discipled. I, I love all the discipleship that we see going on, but maybe some of you should engage in a new way in this coming year. Then fourthly and lastly, uh, private worship. And, and really, in many ways, this is what I've been calling us to here today. How will you discern holiness? How will you rest in grace? How will you discern the trajectory of your path? How will you fight for joy? You've got to be in the Word consistently. I don't know what that's going to look like for you. I don't know what you'll study or when you'll study or how long you study. But I know that if you're not having essentially daily soul surgery done on your heart through God's Word, this whole thing's a sham. So I don't say that to make you feel guilty necessarily, although some examination is good for us. But I call you to look at the Word not as one more thing you have to check off so God will like you. If that's the way you look at the Word of God, you've missed the point. Which is why, again, I've entitled this today, The Scriptures Are Indispensable in Our Fight for Joy. That's what I'm calling us to today. Do you want to have joy? I mean, do you, do you want happiness? There's a reason you do. There's a reason we sin. We want to be happy. There's a reason from time to time whenever we see the beauty of Christ that we're so enraptured by it. You were pre-programmed in your DNA to seek joy. Well, I'm telling you, if you're going to find real joy, you better come to the Scriptures. And don't view it as something legalistic. View it as something which is a path to happiness. And that's rational, and that's good. So let's come to the Word this year, corporately, small groups, as families, as individuals. Let's fight for joy, for the glory of Christ, and for one another's happiness.